Hey, everybody. Good to see you. Good morning, and happy Pentecost Sunday. I don't know if you knew it, but today's Pentecost Sunday, and that is not a denomination. <laughs> that was an event that happened in the Bible. And how many know when God does something, he doesn't just put a shelf life on it in, in the sense that he makes it available to a, a, a few folks. He, when he makes something available, he makes it available to whosoever will. Isn't that right? And uh, some will, some won't. <laughs> and that's up to you. But, but there's some amazing things available to us as Christ followers. And we're going to read about that in the Word today. But we're starting a new series today. And it's called BYOB, Bring Your Own Bible. I, I've always wanted to teach on this. <clears throat> and probably the thing I'm going to dislike about this series the most is how short it is. Because I, it's probably something that we could teach on for the rest of the year. It's the, the, I mean, we're talking about an eternal book. So how do we cover it in you know, two, three, four weeks? But I wanna, what I want to do today is I want to stir up on the inside of you a hunger to read your Bible. Because when you, you don't really read your Bible, your Bible reads you if you're doing it right. I mean, you'll, you'll be reading along something that will just hit you in the heart, and you're like, whoa, I think, I think God just talked to me. Because that's the number one way he speaks to us is through his word. How many know when you're in love with somebody, you write him a letter? Amen. And that's what God did. He wrote you a letter. So John chapter 17 and verse 17, Jesus is talking here, and he said, sanctify them, set them apart, sanctify them by your truth. He's speaking of his father. Sanctify them by your truth. And then he says, your word, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. When I was in Bible college, Dr. Kenneth E. Hagan took a whole, well, he took a whole week. And he taught on that one small phrase where Jesus said, thy word is truth. How many know truth is not subjective, right? It's measurable. And I'm going to quote to you from probably the, the greatest apologist of our day, Ravi Zachariah, who is, uh, he's an Indian brother, and I love this guy. And I've always said, man, if you get the Indians born again and filled with the Holy Ghost, it's going to change the world. And this brother is an example of that. Wow. So he says this, truth as a category does exist. Number two, it's possible in a majority of claims of philosophical and historical statements to verify the truthfulness of those affirmations. Otherwise, if you're saying this happened historically, that can be most of the time verifiable or measurable. Like George Washington was our first president. Oh, yeah? How do you know? You can just take my word for it? No. There's historical evidence that tells us that. Multiple sources, they converge, and so we say, okay, well, then he must have been our first president, okay? And, there, and then number three, there are ex existential realities from which we cannot run. Existential meaning, why do we exist? Why are we here? This is interesting, isn't it, that there was a survey taken just amongst the public at large, Christian, non-Christian, and they said, if, if, if there was a God, and you could ask him one question, what would you ask him? And 96% of the people responded with the same question. They said, I would ask him, what am I here for? What do you want me to do? Okay? So, what in the world am I here for? Good question. That's why the big theme, the big mission of our church is to help people discover their destiny. Because guess what? You have one. And you don't decide it. You discover it. 
You've been fashioned and formed in a certain way so that you could accomplish certain things in the earth for such a time as this. And the Bible is your roadmap to figure that out and, and to walk it out. So that's the good news today. All right. So, in other words, there are existential realities from which we cannot run, which drive us to find the answers to the questions about our origins and why we exist. The word existential, don't let that throw you off. It simply means this. It means concerned with human existence. And after World War II, this existentialism became a major philosophy because people were grappling with the existence. They were doubting the existence of a moral deity that could allow the atrocities of World War II. In other words, you've heard this before. If there's a benevolent God, how could he allow such bad things to happen in the earth, right? We've all asked that question. If there's a good God, why does he allow bad stuff to happen? Well, because he created people. <laughs> and he gave us a free will, and he gave us dominion in the earth. So it's not like he's given us the earth and just stepped back to, to watch. He, he's interacting with us. It's why he sent his son, Jesus, so that those bad things would not happen. Did you know that in all the major religions that Christianity is the only one that talks about redemption? That's, that's a whole other sermon for another Sunday. But So how do, this is what I want to talk to you about today. How do we know that the Bible is true? Isn't that a good question? I know that you all believe that, or most of you believe that it is, but has it, have you ever had a conversation about why we believe that it's true? Or has it, you know, here's something that I hear people ask me from time to time. Well, Pastor, how do we know that over all these centuries that the Bible hasn't just changed and people haven't manipulated it to say what they want it to say to get us to do what they want us to do? You know, giant conspiracy theory, right? That's a fair, and these are good questions, and I think they're fair questions. And I want to just start off by saying that I am no expert or I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer and... I know a lot of this stuff, but I don't teach on it very often because, quite honestly, it's difficult and challenging to make it interesting. But I can tell that you are interested, and I will only teach on this as, as far as, I'll go as far as I feel that you're connected with me and that you're getting something out of this, okay? I'll, I will endeavor to keep it as interesting and as entertaining as possible, but... Um, on this peg of scripture hangs all of what we believe as Christ followers. So we are trying to find the bridge today between your head and your heart. And all good apologists, and that's not people that apologize for a living, that's someone who explains why we believe what we believe. All good apologists, they try to get to our hearts through our heads. And I'll tell you why. Because we are not ask to believe all this stuff without verification. In other words, faith is not blind. Oh, just blind faith. No, we don't just take this on blind faith. There's evidence that demands a verdict. So, let's get into it. I want to start off with the scripture. It's in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verse 16, then we're going to skip to verse 19, 20, and 21. 2 Peter 1, verse 16, Peter makes an amazing and important statement. He says, We did not follow cunningly devised fables 
when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let me pause right there. We have some lawyers in our church. We have a judge who attends occasionally who's a friend of mine. Do you know how important and powerful and irrefutable eyewitness accounts are in the court of law? They're pretty important. They're pretty hard to overturn or to contradict. If you got somebody, it's multiple people saying, no, 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 I saw it. That's what I saw. And they're all independently corroborating and saying, I saw this. And the other guy goes, I saw the same thing. Then it must be true, right? And by the way, there are secular, uh, there are Greek, Roman, Christian, Jewish, pagan eyewitnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So today in a court of law, it would hold up. And nobody's ever been able to find the body. I'm just saying. So we know that the authority of Jesus is connected to his resurrection. If anybody could ever disprove the resurrection, then the gig is up, man. We can't go any further. This is all a farce, and it's just the opium of the people, religion. But this is not religion. This is relationship. And if you think about it, all the, the Romans who were death specialists, they knew that the man was dead. That's what they did for a living. And they had done it a lot. So they knew Jesus was dead. And if he wasn't dead, just the burial, embalming and burial process alone would have killed him. So they killed him, buried him. And then three days later, it was humanly impossible to have that stone to two plus tons physically move because they rolled it downhill boom, to lock it in place to get there and sealed it with the Roman Empire seal, which to, to break that seal is treason and punishable by death. So to roll a, over two tons of a stone uphill, and by the way, when you, when you read, I'm way off my notes already, but this is so interesting. The Bible is so interesting. When you read it, that when they came to the, who, who's going to roll the stone away from? How in the world are we going to get in there? They were bringing the spices to, to further embalm his body. And when it says the stone had been rolled away, it wasn't a uh, rolled away stone. No, it was the stone had been flung out of its place. Like, how many know that a group of men don't just pick up 4,000 plus pounds and fling it way beyond? The, so it wasn't just rolled away. It was flung out of its It was displaced. Almost like the angel just went, you know, like you swipe a Facebook page or a, you know, a page on your tablet. And it's just, the stone was like, boom, boom. It was, way, it was way over there. So it wasn't just, you know, barely, you know, Jesus squeezed out barely. No, it, it, it was rolled away. So that in and of itself is what freaked out the Roman soldiers. And that when they came to, they're like, oh, snap. We better go come up with a story about what happened here. And Okay. Again, come back Easter and I'll pick up there, okay? <laughs> All right, so they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so we have a prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. So your Bible is a light that shines for you in a dark place. It's your flashlight, all right? How many of you have a flashlight on your phone? You got one of these? So that's what your Bible is through the journey of life. It's your flashlight. It keeps you out of trouble. Now, um, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Verse 20, 
Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, or Scripture wasn't written by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He's telling us this is the process of how the Scripture, the Bible was written. Holy men of God were moved as by the Holy Spirit. That word moved in the Greek, it's the same word that sailors use for putting up their sails, letting the wind fill the sails, and just carry them along. So the Holy Spirit will come into your spirit, fill you, and inspire you, carry you along, and that's how, we, that's how the Scripture was written. Now, see, why is this so important? The written Bible, why is it so? Why can't we just you know, take the verbal stories that were hand, handed down, that sort of thing? Let me give you a quick story. There was a man who was studying for his doctorate degree, and in his doctoral thesis, he kept, instead of writing the footnotes and giving references to where he was finding these profound things he was saying, he would, he would say instead, as it was told me by the waiter on Fifth Avenue, or as it was told me by the elevator operator in the business complex. And so his professor came to him and he goes, hey, you can't just say as it was told me verbally by somebody. You have to write down and cite your references and then put the footnote. And the, guy, the student, he goes, aha, uh -huh. well, why? Who says I have to do that? Who came up with that idea? And the professor, he said, okay, I just wanted to know where you were coming from. So a couple of months went by and the professor came to this young man and said, congratulations, I just want you to know that you're graduating today, and we are granting you your Ph.D. But we're not giving it to you in writing. You're just going to have to take our word for it. <laughs> so the inscripturation process is vitally important on multiple levels. I think we can agree with that, right? Somewhere in our house, actually I laid eyes on it the other day, there we have a marriage license. Uh, that's an important document to us. We have birth certificates for our children. Those are, and of course, there are people who don't have birth certificates all over the world. But my point being is, we've we put a value on things that are written, do we not? Okay. So there's something about that inscripturation process that's very important. Truth is primarily a property of propositions. So when you look at the Bible, it's a very distinctive book. It's not like um, Buddhism where they take the sermons of Buddha and they, 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 put, they put them together. The teachings of Buddha, they're little sermons of Buddha and they put, put those together. The Quran, which is the utterances of one man who r received these sayings directly from Allah. He, he fell into a trance and then he spoke them out and they were actually written down posthumously. Meaning after he was dead is when they wrote it all down. And so, and, and, and they do not allow the Quran to be scrutinized, by the way. It's, it's not permitted. However, the Bible is the most scrutinized document on, on the planet ever, and it still stands up to the scrutiny. I mean, if, if, you, can, if you can stand the critique, you're not afraid, right? Because why? The truth doesn't change. The truth doesn't ever need to be updated like some other religions. They, every year they come out with, here's our, here's our book this year. They, they update it every year. Why? Because it's not the truth. Thy word is truth. Truth is not something that morphs and changes. It just is. Now, something that's true can change, but truth cannot change. 
That's why the Bible says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am true, because it might change later. <laughs> but like, you know, my water bottle is full. That's true. But I'm just going to tell you, that's going to change. It won't be true after this service. I'm a heavy drinker. So, The Bible, if you're taking notes, this is a little factoids to write down. The Bible is 66 books. Six is the number of man. 66 books. 39 in the Old Testament. 27 in the New Testament. Written by 40 different writers, but one author. Think about it. 40 writers, one author. Written over a 1,500-year span, starting in the early 1400s B.C., Ending in the first century A.D. Written by men and that were not contemporaries. In other words, they didn't all live at the same time in the same place. Some lived in different countries at different times. Spoke different languages in different cultures. However, there's one common thread that runs through all the writings. How is that possible? So just I'm going to use the word collusion because I know you know what it means because it's been in the news for the last two or three years to an absurd amount. So the collusion factor would have to be incredible to bring all this to pass. I'll give you an example. The book of Daniel was written 500 years before Jesus was born. It contains a fantastic prophecy about... A massive empire that would come into being. This massive empire would then be divided into four parts. <clears throat> it would then be consolidated into two and then back into one. So uh, when you, um, when you lay, overlay the book of Daniel pro forma onto Alexander the Great, you see Alexander the Great, 300 years B.C., before, uh, before Christ, and how he conquered the then-known world, the Bible says in the book of prophecy, in the book of Daniel, this prophecy says that a mighty he goat would come and lead an army composed of multiple nations that would march underfoot, and that was Alexander the Great. He conquered nations, he incorporated them into his army, he conquered the then known world. But it says this he goat would suddenly fall or suddenly find his demise. Well, in his early 30s, Alexander the Great. We believe was poisoned. He died. His empire, they said, well, what do we do? So the four generals, they divided it up into four parts. Later, it was consolidated into two parts, and then it, it merged back again into one empire, which we know now as the Roman Empire. So the, cons the retroactive conspiracy to make all that line up is beyond even what we could do with our modern technology today. So this book must be a supernatural book. Does that make sense? So it's to be written centuries before and to be so accurate, how does that happen? Well, it's by the Spirit of God. Men of God were, were, wrote as they were moved by the Spirit of God. Isaiah spoke 700 years before Christ was born, but he spoke about the virgin birth. 700 years before it happened. Micah prophesied about the city in which Jesus would be born. How did he do that? Zechariah talked about uh, the, the way in which the Messiah would be crucified. He talked about it 
centuries before it happened. Many of these writers were not even, they didn't even know each other. They didn't even live at the same time, but they wrote about the same thing. So you put all these converging lines of evidence together and the hundreds of prophecies about Christ and how they all converge and come together in the person of Jesus Christ. It would take an extraordinary stroke of genius to retroactively bring all this into the culmination of one person, Jesus Christ. And it's a conspiracy that we could not pull off even today with our modern technology. This is a super natural book. The authority, again, of Jesus Christ hangs on his resurrection. If they could have, Jesus, he, he could have, if he would have just said this, I will rise again spiritually. Nobody could have argued, well, he's still there in the grave. Yeah, but he said spiritually, so we know spiritually, but you can't prove that. But he went out there and he just said, I'm going to rise again bodily. I mean, like, whoa, I... How are you going to stand behind that big boy? I mean, that's a pretty big claim. I mean, if that doesn't happen, then how do we believe anything else that you said? Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But not only did he say it, it happened. He rose again bodily. Not just spiritually, but bodily. Now, which means that if his corpse would have ever been produced, then his authority would have been obliterated, right? Right? So Jesus retroactively authenticated the Old Testament, the one who rose from the dead, by quoting from it. Almost, he quoted from almost every book of the Old Testament, I think, except for maybe the book of Esther. But he quoted from every other book of the, of the Pentateuch and of the Law and the Prophets. And by doing that, he's saying, yes, this, these are, this is the Word of God. Because He would know, because he is God. So here's a good question. How do we know... It's not true. How do we know the Bible's not true? You would have to give a series of contradictions or provide historical, historically false statements to prove that it's not true. In other words, uh, if you said that the city of Mobile was on the Bay of Mo, you know, Mobile Bay at the mouth of the Mobile River, uh, but then you found out that Mobile is actually 100 miles northeast. And so then you go, oh, well, that's not, that wasn't accurate. What they wrote about Mobile is not accurate. And then if you found something else that we wrote, you know, Pastor Kevin Cooley, he pastored Harvest Church in Mobile in 2019. But if you actually found out that it was, Pastor Kevin did pastor it, but it was in the 1800s. You, know, you, you started finding all these things that were inaccurate. Then you would go, I wonder what else in this document is inaccurate. But when you look at the Bible and read it, nobody has found anything that's historically inaccurate. I remember when I was in Bible college, the higher critics of Scripture were saying, well, we know the Bible's not accurate because the, the book of Jonah. Well, what do you mean the book of Jonah? You mean that... There's not a fish big enough to swallow in. No, 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 there's fish big enough, but there's no such place as Nineveh. There's no ancient city that could, that's big enough to be, it takes, whatever, three days to walk across it. Well, before I graduated from college, archaeologists discovered the ruins of a city that they presumed to be Nineveh, and it would take about three days. It's taken them about three days to walk from edge to edge. Okay, they found Nineveh. So there's nothing in Scripture that is historically inaccurate. It's all precise. There's, you know, there's, there's stories about the Hittites. Well, there's other historical documents that talk about the Hittites. They corroborate Scripture. They don't contradict Scripture. You see what I'm saying? So there, there's no historical inaccuracies in Scripture that can be proved. 
Um, and and here's, here's an interesting thought. After 2,000 years of Christ's incarnation being here, 35 years since the inscripturation process, no book has been more studied than the Bible, no book has been more scrutinized than the Bible, and no book has been more persecuted than the Bible, and no book has been more read than the Bible. No, no book has changed more lives than the Bible. And by the way, guess what Bible means? Bible. It means the book. Not a book. The book. That's, that's the name of it. It's the book. The book of all books. There's no other holy book called the book except for our book, the book, the Bible. And it's the holy book, by the way. Um. At Princeton University, which, by the way, is not a bastion of conservatism by any means, at uh, that university, Dr. Bruce Metzger, he's America's greatest New Testament scholar, and then F.F. Bruce, who's the greatest British New Testament scholar, they've both arrived at the same conclusion, and I'm, and I'm going to read it to you. The documents and authority of the Bible are totally reliable. They, these two professors, declared secular professors who happened to be professors of New Testament, among other um, ancient documents and historical things, but they declared that it was safe for scholars to say that the Bible was 99.4 to 99.6 corroborated and accurate. <laughs> That's pretty good testimony, which, by the way, cannot be said of any other document from antiquity. No other literature in antiquity comes close to having the records of authentication and documentary support that the Bible has. Over 5,000 other documents that support what the Bible says or corroborate what the Bible says. Time magazine in 1988, was a religious writer named Richard Osling, he said, One thing we cannot deny the Christians is the documentation that's available across the centuries. Nothing in ancient literature matches or compares with the Bible. So when you have this kind of accuracy and documentation of the accuracy and you have this kind of person in Jesus Christ who declared he was going to be raised from the dead and his followers said that he was raised from the dead, you can't produce the corpse. And, and, and here's an interesting thought. Did you know that the only record or the only book from antiquity that says that Jesus did not die on the cross is the Quran? And I heard a story yesterday of Ravi Zacharias who had a conversation with the leading Muslim cleric from Damascus. And they actually have developed a friendship and they're very kind to one another. And they, were, they had a three-hour conversation where each person could ask the other one one question about their religion. And Ravi's question was, why does the Quran state that Jesus did not die on the cross? That was his question. And he said, why do you, why do you ask that? He goes, well, because, uh, of course, we know that Jewish scholars, Josephus and others, they say Jesus died, Jewish historians. We know that Roman historians say that Jesus died on the cross, this historical person, Jesus. We know that Christians, obviously, their historians say Jesus died on the cross. But pagan historians say Jesus died on the cross. Greek historians say that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, died on the cross and was buried. So 
all, everybody, all the historians say, except for the Muslim historians. And this, this Muslim cleric went on record as to saying this, which took great humility. And he said, maybe it's time for the Muslim world to stop asking if Jesus died, but rather ask why he died. <laughs> That's amazing. How did that man come to make that statement? Because logically, in his mind, in his intellect, he could not deny the historical accuracy and the records of antiquity that give the evidence that this actually happened, that Jesus of Nazareth was, died on a cross and was buried. His religion says, no, that didn't happen, but every other historian says it did. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? So, uh, I'll tell you a story about how powerful the gospel is. Um, but, but if we have this kind of historical accuracy and we have this person of Jesus, then I think it's important that we take Jesus and his book very seriously. Whoever you are. I have an atheist friend that I actually went to Bible college with. He wasn't an atheist in Bible college, but it was when he got older and life happened. And, you know, and then people they can't reconcile their experience with their beliefs. But when, you, but when you know that thy word is truth, God's word is true no matter what you experience. You keep looking to his word and let it, because it, it can't change. Your circumstances can. Your experiences can change, but God's word cannot. But if you don't know his word, it's very difficult for it to affect your circumstances. That's why I'm telling you, I said all this this morning to say, read your Bible. That's what a good pastor should tell his people, right? Read your Bible. Read it every day because it will read you and it will put life in you. It's the bread of life. So this morning I'm hope that I, I'm like a baker. And you're like, oh, man, Pastor Kevin, what, what is that? That's ah, the bread of life. Bringing out some nice, hot, warm, oh, it's good stuff. I'm going to yeah, put some butter on it. This is, this is not Atkins friendly. This is just eat as much as you. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Eat it up. Eat it up. My wife and I are doing keto. So we're, anytime we can talk about bread, we're going to talk about bread. It's good stuff. Anyway, I'll tell you this story about the power of the gospel. Many years ago, and it's been over a decade now, I was in the city of Calcutta where I used to live. But I was visiting, and I went to the Blue Sky Cafe, which is where Gavin and I used to go for breakfast on Saturday mornings when he was a little guy. And when I walked in, I had, um, I had actually Mike, my friend Mike Van Buskirk was with me. And when I walked in, the waiter there, he goes, oh, my God, Mr. Kevin, how are you doing after such a long time? Please come. So he recognized me, and his name is Samson. And so we hugged each other, and he says, come sit at your favorite place where Gavin and I always sat. And he goes, I know what you want, two eggs over medium, peanut butter toast, and fresh fruit juice. And I was like. This guy's got an amazing memory. I hadn't been in there in like two years, and he remembers my order. It was phenomenal. And so as we're sitting there, and he, and he sits down right beside me. There's not a lot of personal space in India because there's 1.3 billion people on one-third the land mass of the United States of America. And by the way, India is the most religious country in the world and has the highest suicide rate on the planet. Go figure. So they're searching for answers, and Jesus is that answer. 
So Samson sat right next to me, and he wanted to get reacquainted. He, he said, how are you? How is your little boy? And all these things, you know. I said, how is your mother? Because I'd prayed for her one time when she was sick and all these things. And all of a sudden, on the inside, I sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, Kevin, you need to share the gospel with this guy. So I'm like, okay, well, I need wisdom on how to do that because I know he's a Muslim guy. India is a predominantly Hindu country, but Calcutta is about 40% um, Muslim because it's on the border of Bangladesh, which is a Muslim country. So I said, Samson, we've known each other. We've been friends for a long time. He said, yes, Mr. Kevin. November 1997 is the first time you came to my store. I'm like, wow, his memory is amazing. <laughs> and and uh, I said, well, all these years we've known each other. There's something that I've never told you, but I need to tell you. May I share it with you? He said, of course, you're my friend. Tell me anything. I said, well, in your book, the Quran, it says that Jesus is coming again. The Quran says that Jesus is, is going to return one day. He said, yes, I just read it the other day. I said, do you know why Jesus is coming again? He goes, no, the Quran doesn't say why. It just says he's coming again. I even asked my cleric at the mosque, why is Jesus coming again? Even he also, he did not know. I said, that's what I want to tell you. Why Jesus is coming again? He goes, oh, I would very much like to know this. I said, but first I have to tell you this. And I shared the gospel with him as found in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. You can look it up later, write it down. 1 Corinthians 15, one of the most important chapters in the whole New Testament. But I quoted to him, I said, well, Jesus died for your sins. He said, no, because Muslims don't believe Jesus died, right? They're, even the, the Quran says that Jesus they, they, uh he appeared to die, but he did not die and all these things. So I said, Jesus died for your sins. He said, no. They buried him. He said, no. I didn't, I didn't stop to argue why, because the preaching of the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. I don't have to make it powerful. It is powerful. All I have to do is share it. Okay? You don't, when you drink water, you don't have to like push a button so that it will hydrate you. You just drink it, and it does what it's supposed to do, right? So I didn't try to convince him of it. I just shared it with him because it's already true. The truth impacts and affects us. In fact, the Bible says that man's conscience bears witness to the truth. So his whole life, he's been trained intellectually that Jesus did not die, but something on the inside of him, the gospel hit him on the inside and said, ooh, what is that? So I said, Jesus died for your sins. He said, no. I said, they buried him. He said, no. On the third day, God raised him from the dead. He said, no. And I said, all this happened according to the Holy Scriptures. He said, no. I said, now, do you know why Jesus is coming? He goes, no, 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 I, I don't know, but I want to know. I said, Jesus is coming to judge everyone who does not believe what I just shared with you. And he went, oh, my God. <laughs> just, like, just like that. Oh, my God. Why? Why? Because his head was saying no, but his heart was saying yes. His spirit, because everybody's spirit came from God. Did you know that that, uh, that particular religion does not believe that we're made in the image of God? <laughs> that explains a lot. But we are made in the image of God. And our, we all have a spirit that came from God. And that spirit that was in my friend Samson, the, the, it bore witness to the truth that I share with him. I said, he's coming to judge everyone who doesn't believe what I just shared with you. And he went, oh, my God. He said, what should I do? You know, what's the Bible? It has so many stories of people going, what must I do to be saved? He said, what should I do? Because I knew what he meant. I have this dilemma. I've been taught and trained all my life that that's not true. But, but something on the inside of me says it is true. And if Jesus is, that's why Jesus is coming, I'm in trouble. What should I do? I said, Samson, 
you should believe what I just told you. And he said so sweetly and sincerely, he says, I don't know how. Oh. I said, I can help you. Give me your hand. We held hands right there. And at that little table in the Blue Sky Cafe in Calcutta, India on Sadar Street, I led my friend Samson in the prayer of salvation. And he gave his heart to Jesus. He was born again. Out of darkness into light. Isn't that wonderful? That's how powerful this word is, this scripture is. It's a sharp two-edged sword. It doesn't hurt. It heals or brings life. It's like a scalpel. It can be a sword for the enemy, but it can be a scalpel to the sick, those who need it. Ravi Zacharias was living in South India, a 17-year-old boy. He was so exasperated, didn't know the meaning of life, so he attempted suicide. He was an atheist, and on his hospital bed. He, he, he came to, he had all these needles in him, and so he said, not only am I a failure at figuring out why I'm alive, but I'm a failure at dying too. I'm just a failure. And he said, a, a man came into my room, and he had a little red New Testament Bible. He goes, I don't even know how he got in there or who allowed him in there. But he gave the red New Testament to my mother, who's a Hindu woman, and in her broken English, she began to read the scripture to me, it was an English Bible, and she read to me, Ravi, I think you need to hear this. It was in John 14. Ironically, Jesus in John 14 is talking to Thomas, St. Thomas, who is the very man, first person to come to India and bring the gospel, who actually preached the gospel to Ravi's ancestors. He was of that same tribe. And she said, I think you need to hear this. This Jesus guy, he said, he said um, uh, I am the way, the truth. And the life. Ravi thought, if he's the life, I need this life. He said, so he just prayed a prayer. Jesus, if you could give me this life, I'll receive it. And he was born again right there in his suicide bed by hearing one small scripture. That's how potent this stuff is. One word from God can change your life forever. Read your Bible. In conclusion, I want to share this story with you about just the beauty and the power of Scripture. And it is another story about Ravi Zechariah in 1971. And anything, anything you can watch by him on YouTube, it's, it's phenomenal. If you have just Google questions that you have about the Bible and put his name in there, and it'll probably come up on a clip of him explaining it. But he was in 1971, he went to Vietnam. And to preach the gospel. And he was given an interpreter who was probably 17 years old. A young man named Hyen. And Ravi would preach and Hyen would interpret. And God moved powerfully. Revival broke out. People were born again. And, but then uh, after a few months. And, and he said they saw things that two young men should have never seen. But after a few months Ravi had to leave. And the Viet Cong captured Hyen. And put him in a prison camp, and they began to brainwash him. They said, the only thing you can read is Marxist material, communist material. They took everything in English away from him. They said, the missionaries have ruined you, and the Bible's not true, and all these things. And after, and they would play these recordings, and he lived in a cell, and, 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 so, and he tried to hold on to his faith. And after months and months and months, finally, 
crumpled in his cell, high end, prayed one day, and he said, God, this is my last prayer. Starting tomorrow morning, I no longer believe in you. The next morning, the commanding officer came in and assigned him latrine duty, and he thought, perfect. How could it get any worse? It's the most despicable place in the whole prison camp, and it's no not going to win any cleanliness awards. So he's in there and he's cleaning all this human excrement and it's atrocious and it stinks. And out of the corner of his eye, he sees a piece of paper and it looked like on this paper was written English. And he hadn't seen English in months and so he, 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 he didn't want anybody to steal it from him or take it from him. So he took that piece of paper and he put it in his pocket and he continued his trip. When he got back to his cell, he took some water and he washed the human excrement and things off of this piece of paper. And it was a, a torn out page of the book of Romans chapter 8 that said, For all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. He read that and he fell to his knees and he said, Jesus... In the very moment that I rejected you, you've chased me with your love into the latrine, and you've given me this beautiful scripture to comfort me and to love me in my time of greatest need. So the next day, to the commanding officer's surprise, he requested latrine duty. The commanding officer said, sure. Sitting back in there, he found another piece of paper. And every day he found scraps of paper and he washed them off and he rebuilt most of the book of Romans. And come to find out the commanding officer years before had been given a Bible and he was tearing out pages and using them as toilet paper. But that man so valued scripture that he would wash them clean and rebuild the book of Romans and the book of Romans rebuilt him. And years later, he had been set free, and he showed up in America, and he called Ravi. He goes, do you remember me? And they reconnected, and he goes, Jesus came at my lowest point, and he brought me his word, and his word, it healed me, and it set me free, and I'm here today because of his word. And he finished his education at, at Berkeley, and he went on to be a powerful minister of the gospel. Maybe you feel like, you're in the crap hole of life today. I want you to know there's a word for you. There's a scripture for you. I don't know exactly what it is. I could probably pray for you individually and, and get a prophetic word for you. But we have a prophetic word that's even more sure. What is it? We have the Bible, the book. And if you will read it, God will speak to you wherever you are. And he will bring you out of that place. And he will bring you into your destiny. Bow your head, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before your throne of grace, and I pray that you would put such a hunger in my church for your word, that they would long for the bread of life. And like 2 Timothy 3 says, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's God-breathed, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man and woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I pray that everyone here today would have a steady diet of your word in their life, that they may be thoroughly equipped and complete. If you're here today and you've never received the word himself,
The Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. If you're watching us online today and you've never received the Word, Christ Jesus, I want to pray for you. And as I pray the prayer of salvation, if you want me to include you in this prayer so that you can pray this prayer and receive the Word of God into your own heart, you can receive Christ into your own life and receive eternal life, would you just say, hey, Pastor, that's me. Include me in that prayer. Whoever you are, just raise your hand right now and let me see who I'm praying with today. Or if you're watching us, oh, God bless you. I see your hand. Anybody else? Awesome. All right, I got you. I see you too. And if you're watching us online, if you want to join those that here are with me that have raised their hand or maybe over in the family venue, we're all going to pray this prayer together with you because you don't have to do this alone. You need to get connected. Experience Jesus is what you're about to do, but then we want you to get connected, discover your destiny, and help us change the world. Let's all pray it together right now. Say it with me today. Those who raised your hand and those who didn't, let's all say it. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for sending Jesus who died for my sins and they buried him. But on the third day, you raised him from the dead and he is the bread of life. I say, Jesus, you are my Lord. From this day forward, I am yours. You are mine. Fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, you were just born again. We celebrate you and we celebrate with you. Welcome home.